welcome to this BMJ podcast about well-being. Today we're talking to the author and editor of a new book focusing on doctors' well-being. I'm Abby Rimmer, careers editor at the BMJ. And I'm Kat Chatfield, a trained GP with an interest in quality and patient safety. Abby and I co-lead the BMJ's campaign on well-being, which is obviously a huge concern right now. Today we'll be chatting to two GPs who've dedicated a lot of their own working lives to caring for other doctors. So Kat, this is a really interesting topic for us to be talking about and two very interesting people for us to talk to because obviously in the in the time that we're in at the moment, doctors are under even more pressure than normal and probably need even more looking after but might not have the time even that they need to get that help. Absolutely. I think, you know, the whole theme of our wellbeing campaign, um, which preceded COVID and then the, the themes of the wellbeing podcast, which we started off in COVID, was all about kind of what is unique for doctors, what what's special about the way they work, the pressures that they're put under, the way that they have to react, um, which was obviously hugely different from everyone else in COVID when um, doctors, along with other essential workers, were still just having to go to work and carry on and work so differently. Um, and then how, what impact does that have on them and how can we try and support them? So I think it's really nice to kind of take a step back and take a look at the big picture. Absolutely and that's why I'm really pleased to welcome onto the podcast two people who can talk to us all about this. I'm Claire Gerarda, I'm a general practitioner and I head up the NHS Practitioner Health. Fantastic and Zaid would you mind introducing yourself to you? So yeah, my name is Zaid Al-Najjar and I'm a GP and I'm the Deputy Medical Director at NHS Practitioner Health. Great, thank you. Well, welcome, Claire and Zaid. We're very lucky to have you. Um, before we kick off, just in case there's anyone who's unfamiliar with it, Claire, could you just tell us a little bit about the Practitioner Health Programme? The Practitioner Health Programme is a free confidential service that's available to all doctors in England who might feel they have a mental health or addiction problem. It's been running for 11 years. It's self-referral only, and we provide a whole range of services from inpatient care right through to case management and talking therapies. Brilliant. Thank you, Claire. So, Zaid, we're talking at rather an unusual time, and we wondered whether, um, given that the pandemic has put a sort of a whole load of extra pressures on doctors, whether your service has seen any increased demand in the recent period. Gosh, yes, certainly. Um, we were just discussing today at our team meeting about the increased numbers of uh, of, of uh, doctors um, and dentists who are self-referred to us. Uh, so during the beginning of the pandemic, I think everyone was so distracted with, with, with what was going on and, and heading up the front line. Um, n- numbers did drop off a little bit, but now uh, we're, our numbers are, are right back up there and, and higher than uh, than we've seen for quite some time. 100% higher, actually, than the start of the pandemic. Gosh. Wow. That's a huge increase. Well, those of you who can't do the maths, that's double the numbers that we saw pre-pandemic. And are you seeing the same kind of patterns of of problems and things like that? Or have you noticed a a difference in in sort of concerns that people are referring with? We're certainly seeing a lot more um, anxiety uh, that's been triggered by, um, well, isolation, uh, different ways of working, uh, pressures on families, uh, worries about income, uh, worries about different ways of working. So, yeah, all of those things um, have come into come into the mix. And I think also uh, the 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 events uh, during COVID has been quite triggering for some people who who've perhaps had prior mental health difficulties or undergone some trauma in the past, um, and and it's 
it's led to, I think, what's the increased numbers that we're now seeing. So what we're not seeing is what we used to see pre-pandemic is people with complaints or referrals to the regulator getting depressed. It's We're seeing really uh, a massive increase, as Zaid said, in anxiety, depression, but then emotional symptoms as well that don't quite meet diagnostic category of mental illness, but fear, shame, guilt, hopelessness. Uh, And so we're seeing a whole range. And as Zaid said, people with previous problems, and maybe they were abused as a child or or suffered loss as a child, the, 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 the problems of the pandemic are triggering a mental illness. And also what we're not seeing that we people have said we should be seeing is post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, I think it's still early days, but we're seeing that we are seeing people who who are traumatised, who are presenting with, with being abused uh, or depression for following being a victim of, of domestic violence. Yeah, so Claire, I was going to ask you, actually, you... I've heard you speak in the past about kind of the fear of being referred to a regulator stopping doctors from seeking help. And I wondered if that had changed at all during the pandemic, because I know the GMC has made efforts to say, you know, if because of the pressures on services, you won't be referred for certain things. And has the pandemic in any way changed the doctor's relationship with with their regulator? Well, of course, we don't know causation and correlation because only a sort of case control study, but we've certainly seen a lot less people involved with the regulator so pre-pandemic but it's dropped each year to be fair to the GMC so when we first started it was 30 percent and it dropped a sort of average of about 15 percent but it's dropped considerably now and I think the GMC have made enormous efforts to facilitate and accommodate doctors new working practices I mean if you think about at the peak of the pandemic a doctor was being confronted with probably about 30 new pieces of guidelines a week uh, you couldn't possibly keep up with them. And some of them were contradictory as well. So the GMC have been unbelievably facilitative. And I think that is reflected in, in what we're seeing. Though, of course, you know, you're a scientific journal and, and organisation. It's difficult to say correlation and causation. Thank you. And Claire, can we sort of go back to talking about the sort of pre-pandemic picture? Because obviously your book, um, Beneath the White Coats, um, I assume was was percolated pre-pandemic and it explores a huge range of issues related to doctors' well-being. And while you and Zaid were putting the book together, um, was there anything that particularly stood out or surprised you when you were looking at the whole picture? Yes. Uh, thank you for mentioning the book, Beneath the White Coat, Doctors, Their Minds and Mental Health. All proceeds are going to the charity Doctors in Distress. And if I say so myself, it's a very readable, evidence-based book. What surprised me I mean, the book uh, gives the evidence base. So we debunk issues such as burnout. We look at uh, whether the rate of mental illness has increased amongst doctors or whether it's attribution or or the fact we're talking about it more. And we also look at the whole causation because doctors do not suffer from different mental illnesses. They just have different different presentations. But where I am surprised and very proud of the book, there are some unique chapters. For example, a chapter on the autistic doctor, doctors with autism a chapter on bipolar disorder uh, and, and medicine. No, nobody's pulled together the evidence around bipolar. And we've got, I think, today, probably about 200 doctors with bipolar disorder. We've got uh, chapters on shame and stigma. We've got a chapter on suffering. We've got the historical context. So 100 years ago, a lovely chapter by Amy Wilson, who was a medical student, 
looking at uh, in the historical context of doctors and mental illness. And then the last section of the book is very parochial to the UK. The rest of it's international, really, about what to do if you get into trouble. And the old maxim, you know, if in a hole, stop digging. But we help you provide you a spade, help you get rid of some of the dirt and actually get you out of that hole. I don't know whether, Zaid, you want to say anything more. Yeah, and and uh, also um, the the chapters on the GMC and, uh, and and getting out of trouble. So those are fairly unique because um, I don't think doctors are very aware of of the, the regulator and their processes and and what happens when you get into trouble with them. Um, so I think kind of a walk through of that process um, is, is quite helpful. And I, and I I used to work in um, in medical defence and I I don't think that's very clear and hasn't really been done before. Um, so unless you actually get into trouble, you don't really need to know. But it's quite an interesting quite an interesting aspect of the book which I don't think has been uh, published before. And we've got a, a chapter on the migrant doctor which of course is very topical uh, international medical graduates and and look at the, the the quadruple whammy that doctors trained overseas are subjected to. My father was a, an overseas trained doctor and I as I wrote the, the, the chapter and in fact it's got a lot of personal comments about him it, what's happening to the, the migrants now resonated the fact that you leave usually uh, a prestigious job, usually quite senior. You have to come here, retrain. You should do unpaid jobs. You're, and as we know from the the, the GMC reports, you're, you're you're ostracized from the the tribes that exist. So that chapter's there, and there are there is something for everybody. Hopefully, there's a chapter on medical students. We look at the evidence around medical students and mental illness, and the take home message for that is that for 70 years we've been concerned about the mental health of medical students. And for 70 years, we've done nothing about it other than write about it. So maybe now is the time to do something about it. It's really interesting, Claire, that you you mentioned the chapter on migrant doctors, because that stood out to us as well as a, a really interesting topic to cover. And I wanted to ask either of you, perhaps, Zaid, if maybe we could touch a bit on what effect the pandemic has had on migrant doctors, because we know that a huge majority of those who have died from COVID-19 are from black or ethnic minority backgrounds. And if the pandemic has maybe exacerbated problems that migrant doctors were already facing. I was just thinking about that uh, as as uh, Claire was talking about the last uh, question. So yes, uh, one of the things that we have been seeing about migrant doctors and a number of a quite a, a large proportion of the doctors that we see um, are from ethnic minorities and they their families are abroad. And one of the things that we are seeing with uh, in in patients who are new presenters and patients who are existing um, uh, patients of ours is that they are. They're isolated and uh, they they don't get to see their families. Everything is done by by Zoom or, or another platform, but they're, they're not able to get back home to see them. Um, a lot um, of the time, their families are relying on them for for some sort of income back home. Um, and uh, yes, fears about um, about the effect of COVID on on the BAME community, um, and that does come across in quite a lot of the histories that that um, that that we see. So uh, that yeah, the fears are real. Um, but isolation is something that really stood out to me um, in hearing the stories. I also wondered with that group about whether there's anything around the kind of sacrifices that they're now making for the NHS, as opposed to how they're treated by that system and if that affects them more greatly than it might kind of a, a white British doctor. Read the chapter, Abby. It, I talk in the chapter about the enormous sacrifices these doctors make, and this was pre-pandemic, enormous sacrifices. Now, 
course, some come because they want to improve their own financial status, their own future. They might come from war-torn countries. But they, our international medical graduates are the backbone of the NHS. Just if you remember last year, we had more new registrants who were trained overseas than those trained in, this, in the UK. And like my father, they, they work in places nowhere else wants to work. They, the, the first wave of immigrants went to the, the North Wales valleys. My father went to the east of England, where, you know, the, the, the flatlands of the Finlands. And they do jobs that nobody wants to do. Now, in the pandemic, of course, we know that they're dying at higher rates and they're working in places, again, locum doctors, peripatetic doctors, GPs. And, and I think bad things sometimes come out of plagues. Sorry, good things come out of plagues. And I think one of the good things that's coming out of this is shining the light on how we have treated doctors who have been trained overseas and how we have marginalised and discriminated against them and yet how we really cannot do without them. Thank you. And looking at doctors in general, um, you speak in the book about what it takes to make a doctor um, and what traits we encourage them to have. How do you think these combine with tackling a pandemic? Um, so the subtext of that question is what happens when you put a load of high functioning perfectionists into this situation? They get exhausted. Zade, what happens when you put a whole load of high functioning doctors? One of them, I'll let Zade answer in a second, but one of them, I ran a group for senior clinical leaders and one of them, worked so hard she actually broke her chair because she didn't get off a chair for 14 hours a day for a month. Can you imagine? She broke a chair. That, I think, is my metaphor. And I feel sad even thinking about it for what we're doing. We're breaking the supports that doctors have. Zaid? Well, gosh, I, I think it's difficult because um, high-functioning high perfectionists um, don't thrive uh, in an environment where perfection isn't allowed. Um, and I think in uh, the current environment, perfection isn't something which is possible. I mean, in the NHS anyway, perfectionists may struggle because, uh, you know, perfection is, is, isn't easily achievable. Uh, but with the current pressures um, and, and all, all the, the difficulties and fears around PPE and, uh, and other issues, um, I think... Yeah, I think that it may be another reason that we're seeing an increase in the number of patients uh, registering with the service. And Kat uh, and Abby, I think that's where we're seeing the guilt and the shame, the moral injury, because as Zaid said, it is impossible to be a perfectionist in an imperfect environment. And we have an imperfect environment, even more so than pre-COVID. And I think that's probably why we're seeing an increase and what we haven't mentioned, increased particularly in women, young women, uh, who are still going through their training, because to be gendered around this, there is some evidence that women are more perfectionist or, or have the personality traits of perfectionism, possibly more than men. And we're in a, such an imperfect environment that I think it is destabilising some. Mm. And the um, anecdote, sorry, not the anecdote, it's not the right word, but the, the vignette about the patient, Richard, um, who sort of took the entire burden of, of his running his department upon himself um, and, and found it unbearable. And um, that idea of, I guess, feeling that everything is your responsibility and it's your responsibility to fix it. Uh, and then, you know, how does that apply in this situation where, you know, we don't have answers? Um, well, well, doctors have an unrealistic sense of what they can achieve and then they have a guilt associated with that and the vignette you talk about is 
a composite, but it's a composite that, uh, that rings true of a doctor who couldn't make it right in the system, could not make it right, and ended up trying to kill himself by driving into the central reservation of a motorway. And if you, doctors inbuilt, and I think hopefully it's getting better, hopefully, but doctors, the way we're trained is to deny our own needs, to put our head down and make good. And that's fine when the system around you protects you and particularly protects you from overexerting, you know, just puts limits on the amount of hours you can work, puts limits on your own internalized sense of failure. But unfortunately, the system, certainly pre-pandemic, didn't do that. And, and other than in very few places during the first wave, certainly didn't do that. So what we had were doctors doing back-to-back shifts, back-to-back 12-hour shifts, uh, feeling guilty for not having PPE, feeling guilty for letting their the colleagues down because they were shielding whatever. Mm. Thank you. And you talked sort of really powerfully there about, you know, breaking the chair and how we're destroying these supports. So I guess the more positive question is, you know, what can we do to rebuild some of these structures and supports that, that doctors need? Well, that gives me a cue to talk about my charity, yeah. Doctors in Distress. So I've taken over a charity which was set up following the suicide of a consultant uh, cardiologist. And the charity has two, two aims. One is to reduce the rate of suicide amongst all health professions. But the second is to provide all doctors, in fact, all health professionals with safe spaces where they can talk about the emotional impact of their work. I, I don't mean debriefing. I mean spaces such as reflective practice groups, narrative based groups, banning groups, Fortran, whatever, whatever you seem to think in order that they can take problems, sometimes trivial problems that get exaggerated, such as complaints, and actually normalize them get support from their peers, but also give support because a peer group is probably the best place that you can be to help you survive and thrive in medicine. And I think the NHS should make this available for every single clinician, front facing clinician should have access to a therapeutic space where they can talk about their job. Sadly, very few have that. But my charity, Doctors in Distress, all proceeds of the book are going to it, is aiming to do that. And already, We've set up groups for stranded doctors. We've started a long COVID group. We're about to do a black doctors group. We're going to do a disabled doctors group. We've done COVID support groups. So it's very important. And, and doctors like to talk and doctors like to listen. And so put that together in a group of doctors and you've got the perfect scenario. Said, can you tell us a bit more about the Practitioner Health Programme and who it's available to? Is it just for doctors in England or is it available throughout the UK? So um, at the current time, um, uh, NHS Practitioner Health is open uh, as a self-referral service for doctors and dentists uh, throughout England. Um, uh, and we, we expanded last year um, to, to cover the whole of England. Uh, currently, we're not, uh, we're not available to other countries in the UK. Um, however, there are plans to open a, a similar service in Scotland, uh, which will be initially uh, run by uh, Practitioner Health. Um, so, and that will be open to all healthcare professionals in Scotland. Um, in, in other countries, so for example in Wales, we have, I suppose, a, a sister organisation called Health uh, for Healthcare Professionals. So, uh, they're open to healthcare professionals across Wales. Uh, but at the moment, uh, Practitioner Health is open to doctors and dentists in England and coming very, very soon uh, in Scotland. 
Great, thank you. That's breaking news for you. That's breaking news. I know. That's breaking That's news. Yeah. Hot off the press. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, Doctors in Distress, is that an England-based charity or are you UK? It's UK, and it, though the title is Doctors, our articles actually extend to all health professionals. It's just that the person who founded it founded it, called it Doctors in Distress. And it is a marvellous uh, a marvellous charity, which is there to provide support to doctors, provide groups to doctors to lobby on your behalf. If this was the real world, we'll be, we would be inside every single hospital. It's not the real world, we're in the virtual world. So please go on the website, Doctors in Distress, and all proceeds for this fabulous book, which will no doubt be out of the podcast because it's too much advertising, going to, the, going to Doctors in Distress. Oh, we, don't, we, we don't mind advertising for a good cause. Mind. Absolutely. I just I just wanted to go back to one one thing that um, Claire when you were talking about the charity it made me I wonder whether there are any positives that we can take the, from from the pandemic in terms of doctors' well being I'm thinking about you know the the pause that was put on the onerous nature of appraisal and staff being given spaces and I know that some doctors have been given resilience coaches and things like that can we take those positives and hold on to them and move forward with them Yeah and this time I'll use the phrase good things can happen out of plagues. And what we saw, certainly in the good trusts, was a, an enormous focus on well-being. So resilience rooms, ability to get food, hot food, would you believe? Hot food in the middle of the night, chairs to sit on, massage, uh, all sorts of services and access to confidential support. What we saw during the first wave was, was a sort of like somebody had done a magic wand and all the things we'd been asking for, PHP, myself and Zaid, suddenly got put in place. But it was only for, as ever, the hospitals. Because, of course, for, as ever, we have a national hospital service and not a national health service. And where I have serious concerns is my own profession, GPs. We're seen both as a scapegoat and the saviour, when all we want to do is do our best. We have uh, the papers on our back saying we're lazy when we're actually 25% more activity today than we did this time last year. And some of us and many of us are working in isolation, in our bedrooms, ringing patients, calling patients who are distressed. There isn't any hot food for us or donuts arriving at the door or clapping outside or big flower deliveries. And I think where we're most concerned is the hidden groups, GPs, community workers, international medical graduates because as ever those who have more get more we are perpetuating the inverse care law the richer trusts are getting more charitable donations their staff are getting more services and meanwhile the rest of the nhs uh, is sort of not receiving any of that and i think it's important that we we normalize the support across for gps as well and community nurses and care staff not just hospital doctors Zay, just picking up on what Claire has just said, and I think yourself, you're a GP by background. I got that right. Correct. Yeah, that's right. Just listening to what Claire said then, I wondered whether that attitude that we've had towards it, the focus being on hospital doctors, would in any way dissuade other doctors from coming forward to get help if they have, you know, experienced trauma as a result of COVID-19 because they feel like maybe their contribution wasn't worthy enough or hard enough to warrant them needing that help. I would very much hope not. So, uh, and our experience in, in, in recent weeks is, I think that's, that's probably, that's not, not, not the case. I think we're seeing doctors from all specialties presenting. Um, 
But I mean, to echo Claire's comments, I, I do think that uh, primary care general practice has, has sort of been uh, not neglected, but um, the, the focus has really been on, on, on um, acute specialties uh, as being the front line, whereas uh, GPs have been open throughout and working increasingly hard to keep the, the keep uh, uh, primary care going. Um, and we've really struggled. And I, I, I see I feel this. We really struggle um, to get people where they should be going in terms of referrals because um, because lots of things have shut down uh, because of COVID, and that places immense pressure in primary care. Just holding patients through until um, we can get them back into uh, business as usual, whenever that may be. Um, but no, I don't think. I would hope that uh, that that GPs and and um, colleagues in primary care would not feel um, hesitant to seek help if. If, if they needed it, because they're working just as hard um, as, as uh, our colleagues in secondary care. And Abby, I think we'd like to mention as well that COVID is a community disease. There is 10 times, if not more than that, COVID in the community than in hospitals. And for every patient in hospital, the GP has managed and supported tens and dozens of COVID positive patients in the community, let alone all the others. So you say about us, you know, people being deterred from coming. As they said, they're not deterred. But I think what we're seeing amongst GPs is a sense of anger, betrayal, disillusionment, as if no matter what we do, no matter what we do, we can't make anybody realise that we're making a positive impact. It, it, it is difficult. Even my own mother said to me a few weeks ago, I heard GPs were closed. Um, and, uh, you know, that that sort of message is still out there, um, even from from families of people who work in, in the system. So um, it is it, it is difficult um, managing that uh, that issue. Um, yeah. The book, of course, unpicks some of the different professional groups and what their risk factors are for mental illness. But general practice vibes to say in a nutshell, it's because we're seen as both a saviour and a scapegoat. Well, Kat, I thought that was a really interesting discussion that we had with Claire and Zaid. I'd be really interested to read their book. It sounds like it covers a whole range of topics. Absolutely. And Abby, I was lucky enough to get a sneak preview electronic copy when we were planning this podcast. And um, I haven't managed to read all of it, but I have to say when I was going through, I just kept kind of nodding my head and feeling that there were so many things that resonated with me about my experiences of um, everything from when I first kind of started conceiving of being a doctor to experiences at medical school um, to the kind of hidden curriculum and culture and um, all the signals that the profession gives about what kind of um, heroic um, approach uh, it values um, you know from the kind of sort of ideal of the top surgeon being the kind of most prestigious job to to the way it doesn't value general practice um you know i remember when i told my registrar uh, in my oncology job as an F2 that I was going to do GP and he said but you're good enough to be a hospital doctor um, and so all of these kind of cultural things which really kind of can undermine people on a, a sort of very deep emotional level and I think to kind of reflect on those in the book but not just through personal stories of which there's some beautiful personal stories in there and Claire shares a lot of her experiences um, to composite vignettes drawn from patients who've 
gone through the practitioner health patient program which is thousands and thousands of, of doctors and dentists um, but also looking at the evidence you know what what does the evidence say about rates of mental health in doctors and and what we can do about it so that's a very big advertorial for the book no <laughs> but, uh, I, I think that's all great points and going back to your point about general practice I thought it was really nice to be reminded by Zayden Clare about you know the amount of work that is being done by general practice that maybe is being slightly overlooked at the moment during the pandemic because you know the heroicism in inverted commas seems to be coming from hospitals where it's actually as Claire said um, Covid is a community disease so it was really nice to hear. Yeah and I think as we're going in towards the second wave I, mean, I think there was such an amazing um, outpouring of support for the NHS, you know, at the beginning of COVID. And I think people were, well, have varying responses. We've had opinion pieces saying, you know, please don't clap for me. It's not what I need. But I think that kind of feeling of being valued um, is so important for clinicians, um, you know, across hospitals and and um, primary care. Uh, and I think we need to sort of consider how, as a society, we can make sure that that support and sense of value is still being given to, to these staff and all other essential workers um, who are keeping society going during COVID um, and not just in the short term, but for the long haul um, and how um, that kind of sense of recognition can help them cope with the, with the struggles that they're going to face over the winter. Well, I think that's enough for now. Thank you so much to Claire Gerarda and Zaid Al-Najjar for coming on the podcast. You can check us out on social media. We're at BMJ underscore latest on Twitter, or you can join the BMJ Wellbeing Group on Facebook. Please let us know if you have any ideas for what we should cover in the future. So until next time, it's goodbye from us. Bye. Bye.